Hello, and welcome to Health Views with Deb Friesen, MD, a podcast about health and wellness within today's healthcare landscape. I'm your host, Dr. Deb Friesen with Kaiser Permanente, and I've been working in healthcare for over 20 years. During that time, I've learned that the most powerful tool for healing is the power of listening and the value of asking the right questions. Come join me as we'll together explore timely topics that impact people, businesses, and communities. Now let's check out today's view. The Kaiser Permanente Bernard J. Tyson School of Medicine was founded to educate future leaders in the transformation of healthcare delivery and to address health equity issues. During this HealthViews episode, you'll hear from Mark Schuster, MD, PhD, the school's founding dean and CEO of the med school, which opened its doors and welcomed its inaugural class in July 2020. During this fascinating interview, Dr. Schuster proudly shares his passion for innovation, inclusivity, and commitment to improving the health and well-being of patients and communities by leading one of the most diverse medical schools in the nation. Listen on to hear Dr. Schuster describe the school's core mission, vision, and values, and its clinical learning model, which draws from the expertise of Kaiser Permanente. So, Mark, a new medical school has got to be such an incredible, exciting opportunity. There had to be really broad interest by so many people, so many people involved, probably even applied for your job. Why on earth did they pick you? Huh. Um, well, yeah, it's, you know, I first learned about Kaiser Permanente starting a med school. Uh, you know, I get all these emails with newsletters, like, you know, paragraphs of all the things going on around the country. And I read it that there was this plan, and it just clicked instantly. It made perfect sense. I wondered why they hadn't done it years before. I mean, we're talking about the nation's leading integrated healthcare system, and of course, they should have a med school, and I thought it would be great for the students for medical education, ultimately for healthcare. And, you know, I, I moved, I didn't give another thought. I wasn't connected to KP, but it was just really exciting. And the excitement I felt 3,000 miles away, just reading this little blurb, you can only imagine how excited people were who were within the system. And my understanding is they were really eager to do this. And yeah, there was, of course, interest in this kind of position. And I was just really fortunate that the process worked out and I got to be in this role. Well, you've done so many different things. It made a lot of sense to you. You say you got lucky to be in the role, but but what is it about being the dean and CEO of the med school that really appealed to you? you? You've accomplished so much already. When I look at kind of your CV bio here, there's so many roles that you've had. The William Berenberg Professor of Pediatrics at Harvard Medical School, Chief of General Pediatrics and Vice Chair for Health Policy. You're an MD. You're a PhD. You've done loads of research. So what was it that was the appeal that made you want to come be a part and lead this medical school? Well, it was just everything I read about it and then I learned through the interview process. This was a school that was going to be and now is focused on medical education and innovation and really trying to take the best of what we know about teaching, about pedagogy, and giving it to the students, figuring out what would make the best doctors and bring it to this school. I mean, I, you know, when I was learning about it, it was a school that was going to emphasize patient and person-centered care, community and population health, underserved communities, health disparities, and how to address them, 
lifelong learning, the idea that what you learn in the first year of med school may very well be out of date by the time you finish residency. And what you really need to learn is how to learn, how to process new information, how to embrace new technology and evaluate it and recognize when a new medication will really help your patients versus, no, we better wait till it's replicated in a few more studies. And it's a school that really pays attention to student health and well-being. Uh, it, we recognize that there is burnout among students, among clinicians all over the country, and we try to deal with that right from the start. There were just, I could go on and on, but this is a school that was really going to try to learn from what everyone else is doing and create a remarkable experience. And I just learned about it and I wanted to be a part of it. So you made the big leap from coast to coast, pretty much. Any learnings just from the environment that have been a surprise for you? Well, I didn't know that much about Kaiser Permanente. I, I knew that it was highly respected and lauded, but now I get to see up close how it works and how the systems work and the commitment to members, to patients, and the commitment to community. So there's been a lot of learning on my part about the KP culture and where the magic is. And I'll continue to learn because it, it's endless, but it's been really nice to be creating a medical school in such a supportive environment and to simultaneously be learning about this environment, which is a benefit to our students. Our students get to learn how to be physicians in the clinical settings of Kaiser Permanente. And, and so I'm learning along with them. Speaking of environment, it's a really beautiful physical environment that they actually get to interact with each other in, learn in. Tell me about the development of the physical school itself. Yeah, so our main medical education building is, we're in Pasadena, California, and we Our students go to clinical sites all over the L.A. area and San Bernardino area and beyond, and actually ultimately around the country in KP. But the the building you're talking about is in Pasadena, and it's brand new, and a lot of thought went into it, a lot of discussions with current med school students at other schools, with potential faculty with design experts, with all sorts of people weighing in about what would create a space that would be a wonderful place to learn and to work. You know, I get to come to work here, and it's a pretty special environment. It is very technologically advanced. KP is known for its expertise in IT, and we have a lot of systems and technology built into the school and able to be replaced over time as technology changes. And The whole building is designed to create spaces for collaboration. Our students are learning about team-based care in the clinics, but also in our school. It is small group team-based learning, even in the classroom. And so we have lots of spaces where they can meet in groups and a whole variety. So one day they may want to be in a conference room. Another day they may want to be in our very spacious and sunny lobby and just a variety of places to suit the needs of a variety of students. So it's been a long time, but when I was in medical school, the curriculum was kind of that whole standard preclinical years one and two, getting to our clinical years finally in years three and four. We choose a specialty and then launch. 
So, so compare and contrast what you, the curriculum looks like at the School of Medicine. Well, I had a similar training to yours, from what I'm hearing. And, you know, the two years of lectures and then two years of clinical rotations. And I really appreciate all I learned in med school. But I think that what we're doing is special. And I should say that many med schools are trying to update their approach and really meet the needs of their students. What we're doing is we have, well, I guess I already said it, but I'll say it again. We, we have a small group case-based curriculum. So our students are learning in groups generally of eight, eight to nine in one group of classes and then six or seven in another group. So in the group of eight to nine, they've got two preceptors. One is a physician from Permanente who is a faculty member and another is a biomedical scientist and they team facilitate. And the student, it's flipped classrooms, which means the students prepare before they come. They review the case materials. They may watch videos that cover a lot of the basics of what they're learning, and they may engage in some activities that get them ready. And they come to class ready to engage actively, and they problem solve, and they they figure out what the diagnosis is, and they use the tools available to physicians, and that includes credible sources on the internet. But they work together, and that's really important to us. And we bring together the biomedical science and the clinical science all together in those cases. So we don't have a biochemistry class or an anatomy class. The students are going through the organ systems and they learn, say they're learning the cardiovascular system. They're learning the anatomy and physiology. At the same time, they're learning about the prevention and diagnosis and treatment of cardiovascular disease. And it goes further. They are learning called health system science, meaning they're also learning that men tend to get better quality of care than women when it comes to cardiovascular care. And the same goes for people with Black and Latinx ancestry compared to people with white ancestry. So they're learning all of that together. And they're learning about exercise and eating well in terms of addressing high blood pressure. And so it's all together. So that the biomedical science is not disconnected from the clinical implications. And to go even further, our students are in the clinic from the very third week of school. And so they're learning in the classroom, and then they are applying what they learn in the clinical setting so that they re- it really drives it home. And I'd be happy to talk more about what we do in the clinical setting if that would be helpful. Just I'll mention two more things, but you could get me talking all day about the way our curriculum is set up. We don't have traditional cadavers. We use augmented and virtual reality. We also use plastination, which some people may be familiar with it through an exhibit that's been touring the United States called Body World. But basically, people donate their bodies and then they are dissected and then the organic material is replaced with silicone and various types of plastics so that it is preserved. And we also use imaging because imaging is really a major way that most physicians need to use anatomy. And so our anatomy approach is going extremely well. Other schools are calling us and visiting us to learn how we do it. And and we're really proud of that. And then the other thing is that we've built in a lot of effort to do something I mentioned earlier, to really address student health and well-being and help support our students. So there are other elements too, but those are ones that are coming to mind right now. 
So a couple comments. One is I'm jealous and I want to go back in time, but go to medical school that you've just described. That sounds totally amazing. I remember going through the Plastination demo that came through in Denver and taking my family, my kids, and talking about all the different things. It was just an amazing way to see the anatomy. But I do think that people are going to be cheated out of you know not being able to identify the, uh, the freshman muscle, the sciatic nerve. My family was so impressed with how huge that was. And I remember that discovery in anatomy lab. So I wonder if there's still some kind of surprise that goes on when they get to that place. Oh, well, let me say, they are learning the sciatic nerves. They're learning all the nerves. And I'd say it's even more amazing. When you're, when you're doing this through augmented reality, you've got the liver in front of you. And then you can put your head inside the liver. You can spin it and see from all angles. You can look at the heart. You can go into the heart to see the valves. You can come back out and then you can add on the aorta. You can add in the lungs and remove the lungs. I think that, you know, once you've dissected out the sciatic nerve and removed it from your cadaver, you can't go back and see it again. And all the parts you've already removed, you can't see how they all relate to each other. But in our anatomy lab, I really liked anatomy in med school, but boy, do I wish that I had our anatomy lab. I'm like you. I wish I had this whole experience when I was in med school. I I think it's pretty amazing. So did Kaiser Permanente open up a medical school so that they could basically track people through to their system? Oh, no, 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 no. Our students are encouraged to work anywhere they want, to do residency wherever they want to do it, and to work wherever they want. And, you know, some will go into academia, some will go into private practice, some will work in federally qualified health centers, some will go into global health and be abroad, and some will be in an integrated healthcare system, and that may very well be KP. I I do recognize the students are already loving the clinical setting here, and once you've been to Paris, it is hard to go back to the farm. I do think that many will find that they want to do residency here. And if they go elsewhere for residency, I think many will want to come back here just because they're going to enjoy it so much. But it is in no way something that we are pushing for or that KP is expecting. I think that KP started this med school for other reasons. I should first say that KP has had residencies as far back as 1947. So they're not new to education, and there have been students and residents from other schools rotating through KP for decades. But I also think that there is a recognition that there's something special going on at this greater institution, and that there was a lot of training of physicians when they were hired in patient-centered care and community health and quality improvement in team-based care. And there are all these people who come and site visit KP to learn how to do it so they can take it back to their institution. And that's people from all over the world. And at some point, I think there was a recognition that, you know, we're helping everyone else do this and we're proud of that, but why don't we do it ourselves? Why don't we train med students from our own medical school? So I think that's where it all came from, as opposed to a plan to hold on to all these students. In fact, I've always been told that the goal is to take permanent medicine and all the principles that are a part of KP and spread them around the country so that other institutions can, other patients can benefit from what's been developed here. Absolutely. When I was in clinical practice, 
I always had med students and residents coming through, and it was always such a joy. I think that med students are just the best people. They are altruistic. They're curious. They're hardworking. Tell me about the first two classes of the, of the medical school and the people that are in them. Well, you just described them to a T. They are, they are talented. They're smart. They're compassionate. They're charismatic. They're engaged in what's going on in the world. They're committed to health equity. They're, they're just wonderful. We have holistic admissions, which means our admissions team looks at all aspects of the applicant. Of course, they look at their, their metrics, their you know, MCATs and their grades, but they also look at what they've achieved, distance travel, meaning what did they overcome to be able to go to college, let alone be in a position to apply to med school? Were there hurdles along the way that were societal or familial? And what are the things they've done outside of the classroom? What are their lived experiences? So all of that is there together in the application. And our admissions team does an amazing job. I am not a part of that. So I can revel in their success because there's a firewall between me and the admissions process. I don't actually see the application until the students are accepted, although I do welcome them when they interview. And I really enjoy that because they ask amazing questions. Something that's important to the school is diversity. And our first class, 36% of the students are from groups that are underrepresented in medicine. And those groups, this is a, a term defined by med schools nationally, and it's including students who are of indigenous, black, Latinx, and Pacific Islander ancestry. And the second year, we went up to 40%. That's about double the national average for medical schools. I love that. That excites me so much to hear about when you think about how people learn, how they relate. Having someone in the exam room who looks like you really spreads the potential and influence that you have to actually help them make the changes that they need to, to be adherent to meds, to even just get the whole cultural experience. So 36 and 40%, I think those are amazing numbers. They are amazing numbers. It puts us among the top in the country. But I will say that it would be great if all med schools over time and quickly can increase the national average and the kind of numbers we're seeing so that our medical school classes and ultimately our profession is more reflective of the diversity of our nation. We have quite a ways to go, and we very much want to be, as a school, a part of changing what American medicine and physicians are all about. So one of the things you referenced is that they're not just sitting in the med school. They're actually starting their clinical experience outside the med school, week three, doing something called service learning. Can you tell me what that's about? Yes. Yeah, so we actually have required service learning, and they spend a half day a month in a federally qualified health center, and it's a chance for them to they see amazing clinical care in the KP system, but that's one system. They also see amazing care and operations in these federally qualified health centers. And what they're seeing is how care is provided in communities that may not have the same resources that some other communities might have and federally qualified health centers that often are working very hard to have the resources to serve those communities. It's a setting in which they can learn about all the community supports that are out there that 
partner with these centers and these patients in these communities to really provide as much support for patients as they are able to. And it's a chance for students to, and, and they learn that in KP as well, but, but this is a, a pretty great setting for students to learn in, in these health centers. And part of what they're learning is, again, throughout our curriculum, but it really comes home in these centers, how much what goes on in your home, in your workplace, in your school, in your neighborhood, how much influence those settings have over your health, often much more than what goes on in the clinic. And we teach that in the classroom, and they learn it in KP clinics, but they really do learn it in our service learning program. And the whole meaning of service learning is services. Our students provide a service in these settings. They do a project that is designed jointly in these centers to be of value to the center or the community that the center is in. But the students are also learning. Both of those words really matter, service and learning. And we're really excited about how that's been going. So you come to California, you're dean of the med school, you take on this big project, and a pandemic happens. So so always there are some surprises that life throws at you. What was it like trying to teach medical students during a pandemic? Well, yes, we had plans for earthquakes and fires. <laughs> We've written up all sorts of plans. We did not have this plan. So we learned a lot. We spoke to deans from around the country, medical education experts, public health experts, and got the best advice we could get. And the advice was, if you can be in person, do it. Being in person means students can get to know each other. They can get to know their teachers. It's, you know, you can have hallway conversations. You can ask the teacher a question after class as opposed to making a Zoom appointment. So we looked at our situation, the building you referenced, and we realized we actually had space to move all of our small groups into much larger rooms. This is a building designed for over 200 students, and each of our classes right now are about 50. So we had space to distance in larger rooms obviously keep the masks on and have aggressive cleaning and the screening to get in the building. And so we did a hybrid model. Most of our learning was in person. We did have some learning that was virtual, like learning how to take a history from a standardized patient, meaning mm -hmm. an actor. We wanted people to be able to see facial expressions. So that we did virtually, but most of it was in person. And our faculty and staff worked very hard to adapt our curriculum to be hybrid because six feet apart is still not the same as being all huddled together. And so there were changes. And we also, we did go virtual at times when it was the right thing to do based on what was going on at the school or, you know, in the community with surgeons. And we were able to pivot again because our faculty and staff worked hard to do it. And our students were also incredibly flexible. Our students did continue in the clinical setting and with all the proper protections and really valued the chance to learn in the clinical settings. And of course, they were learning virtual healthcare as well. That was always going to be part of our curriculum because KP is so advanced in virtual care. But this really was a fed up how quickly they were learning about it. And we adapted the curriculum as well. Our students were already learning about health disparities, but now they were seeing it play out in their own families, among friends, in their communities, in the news. The idea is that the color of your skin may be associated with whether you're likely to get COVID-19, whether you're likely to get diagnosed early or later, 
whether you're likely to wind up in, in an ICU, whether you're likely to survive. And they saw it play out the health disparities with the vaccine as well and who got it initially and who didn't and how easy or hard it was to get access to the vaccine. So we integrated into our curriculum what was going on in the real world to give real live examples in the moment of topics like health disparities and vaccine hesitancy and other topics related to public health that were important to our curriculum. So you alluded to this earlier when you said something about the health, um, and I, I know that you meant both the mental and physical health of the medical students. It's such a challenging time, even without a pandemic. You look at the stats for depression and anxiety in medical students and residents. I think it's up to 30% of med students and residents suffer from depression. Up to 10% report having suicidal thoughts. It's already stressful. They're high-performing, highly-driven people, often very perfectionistic, great expectations of themselves. And now they're learning in this stressful environment where maybe things even changed at home for them. They might even have lost someone or known someone who was severely ill, might have become ill themselves. How is it that you actually are helping them take care of their mental and physical health and teaching them that for the long term? Because this is not just, oh, I need to get through this. A lot of us live for the weekend, right? I just need to make it to Friday. But this is something that they are going to need to do to stay healthy mind and body for med school and beyond. Yeah, you're touching on something that is very important to our school. So I will begin by saying the basic structure of the school, we think, supports our students and reduces stress, or at least we're trying to. We cannot eliminate stress. It's med school. We don't know how to remove all stress. But the fact that it is small group learning means that they are actively learning. They're not just falling asleep in the back of the lecture hall or what goes on often. It's not even showing up to class and then watching the videotapes at two or three times speed when it's lecture after lecture. The students are actively engaged. And we think that's important. They also, they can't hide if they're not showing up to class, their teachers know it and their classmates know it because they're in these small groups. Or if they seem like things aren't going well, something's different, everyone's picking up on it. So that's important as sort of the basic structure of the school. And I should add to that, there's a lot of academic support as well. Our faculty are here focused on teaching and are very supportive of our students and very eager to help our students when they have questions or, you know, they're struggling with a particular challenging topic. But beyond that, we have a thing called REAP, which stands for Reflection, Education, Assessment, Coaching, and Health and Wellbeing. And they have a REACH coach who's a physician who's gone through the full coaching training. And that coach has six students in a class and works with that group for four years. And they meet for a week at a time, four weeks a year. And they also have other meetings as well. And it's a chance for the students to engage in self-reflection, to think about their goals, and to come up with a plan to meet them. They learn and they practice strategies for their own well-being. They work on resilience skills. They work on different methods of addressing their own mental and physical health. And there are a lot of techniques they learn. And of course, you know, different techniques work for different people, but they're exposed to the variety of techniques and they can adopt whatever they want. And we think that this is a really nice 
switch from the regular curriculum into a different environment, a different type of learning during those weeks, and a, a place where they can really get some tools that will help them not just during med school, but the rest of their careers. So the medical school was founded at a time of its own loss in terms of much beloved CEO Bernard Tyson, his untimely death in 2019. I just was so touched when the med school actually named itself the Kaiser Permanente Bernard J. Tyson School of Medicine. Can you tell me a little bit more about how his passion for the school and his legacy lives on? Yeah, it was a major loss for our school, but of course, for much more than the school, all of Kaiser Permanente and well beyond. This is a man who was a role model for young people and people of all ages, really, all over the country. He'd become a real symbol. So there's a lot of loss all over with his passing. He cared deeply about the school. I met with him and because he would just call me, (laughs) I see him on my cell phone and I'd answer immediately. And he was always so excited. He wanted to hear the latest, what's going on? And he would just be so happy with every little achievement of the school. He was such a proud parent, but he was more than a proud parent. He was such a trusted advisor. He was so helpful to me and so helpful to the school. He was just so wise. And it was great to meet with him and discuss what was going on. And he remains an inspiration to the school. We Obviously, the name of the school includes his name, and we have his portrait in the lobby, and we have a display that is being put together of his awards and other things that his widow, Denise Bradley Tyson, has been very generously providing us. And so he does live on in the school, and he remains an inspiration, and he was so committed to population health and health equity, the health of all communities. He really cared about communities. He went way beyond our own members in TP to the communities they lived in. And he wanted to make health education better in the country and the world. But even more importantly, he wanted to help health in general. He wanted to improve health for everybody. And I think that's part of why he was so excited about creating a school that would send its graduates out all over the country and the world. We are really proud to have his name on the school. So as you think about this next chapter, and I'm going to have you project a decade into the future, and you look back on your time as dean of the school, how will you know What will be the markers for success that you will feel so proud of? The first thing that comes to mind is our students have come to our school with a spirit that is amazing. The challenge in medical schools is that spirit is drummed out of students. By the time they graduate, they are often cynical and they've given up their idealism and they're just different. And I hope when that happens, they can get it back. We don't want our students to have their specialness drummed out of them by the challenges of medical education. So first, I would like them to graduate with all of what made them special still intact. Obviously, they will grow and change. We all do. But that core element that made them the people who our admissions team were captivated by, I hope that is still there. And I want to see them happy. I want them to be going into fields, into environments to work that are really what they dreamed of and what are 
environments and careers that are well suited to what they like and what they're good at and where they can really serve others. And I hope that they will have learned to be advocates for their patients and the communities they're in. Those are examples of the kinds of metrics. They can be in all sorts of settings. I know I've already said that, and they can be in any field they want to go into. I'd love to see them making a difference. I want them to be happy in their personal lives. I want them to feel fulfilled in their professional life. I would like to see them really doing something that their students who came into the school, if they've had a crystal ball and could have looked ahead 30 years to who they become, would say, I can't wait to get there. I, I really hope they are true to who they started off being, and that would be wonderful. Oh, I love that vision. I don't have any more questions for you. Is there anything that you wish I would have asked? The only other thing that comes to mind is that there's a big emphasis at our school on the principles of equity, inclusion, and diversity. And those come through in many ways in our approach to hiring and our approach to recruiting the students, which we've already talked about, but also in our curriculum. The, the folks who work on developing our curriculum, this is the kind of curriculum where inclusivity was thought about before the curriculum was developed. When the curriculum was mapped out, inclusivity was front and center. And then once the curriculum is done, then we have a team that reviews the whole curriculum to make sure that we have succeeded at making it as inclusive as it can be. So I just wanted to, I guess, give a shout out to them. And in addition to the full curriculum, we also have EID as one of our threads, meaning it's a special emphasis area that runs through all four years. So we have classes in microaggressions and in the history of racism in American medicine. And we've added classes on racialized medicine and genomics and race and other topics where our students have said, we want more and we are concerned. And so we've really tried to be flexible. Our students, our first class and now our second class have been great at pointing out ways to improve our curriculum and our whole school because they're here learning and they have great ideas. And EID is one of those areas among many. And so we benefit greatly from our students, and we are trying to deliver a curriculum and a full school environment that is an extremely inclusive place, and we continue to learn and work on improvement. I mean, I think that's a never-ending journey, but we are on that journey and really glad that we are getting so much input from everybody. I love it. How do they learn more about the medical school if they're interested? Well, they should definitely go to our website medschool.kp.org slash homepage if you want to go right there. We are happy to arrange tours and particularly for applicants, admissions right now for med schools is virtual. But once students are accepted, we set up tours every weekend. We had tours on Saturdays and Sundays throughout the spring. And, and also we can set them up on other days. And for people considering applying, we can set up tours even before they're accepted. We are eager to have potential med students know about us and learn about us and do whatever we can to answer their questions. Mark, I think that you are the embodiment of what you hope your students become. I can hear your joy, your passion, 
your curiosity, I think, has probably stayed, all of those things have stayed consistent since you were a med student. Maybe you've had some times in between, life happens, but I don't know you well, but I envision that you are happy in your personal life, your professional life. Certainly, you've made a contribution to the world and to your patients. And so I love that you are leading in the way that you want to see them become as well. So, so thank you for leading by example. And thank you for the amazing work that you are doing. There will be such a different group of people emerging from these classes, and it's, uh, it's wonderful to see. And last of all, just thank you for making time for this conversation. I've enjoyed it immensely. I, I've learned a lot from you. Well, I'd like to thank you. Thank you for those generous comments. You just guaranteed that my kids will be listening to this podcast. Thank you very, very much, Deb. I've really enjoyed talking to you. It's a pleasure. And I think that we're the lucky ones, Mark. So I'm going to leave it right there. Thank you so much. Truly, it's been a great pleasure. I hope to meet you in person someday soon. And I hope that uh, you have a wonderful weekend ahead of you. You too. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thanks to my guests for joining me today. And thank you for listening to the Health Fuse podcast with Deb Friesen, MD. I hope you'll share this episode with colleagues, friends, and family members who are interested in diving deeper into meaningful and relevant health and wellness topics. I look forward to the next conversation and will share another episode of Health Fuse with you soon. Take good care. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. The discussion reflects the opinions of the speakers and is not intended to represent Kaiser Permanente policy. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. The content is not intended to be a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information is at the listener's own risk. Listeners should not disregard or delay obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their medical professionals.